all they really wanted to do was win the race. And it came to a, it made me realize after, after a while how powerful this can be and how detrimental it can be when you're in the middle of a race and you're looking at your splits thinking, oh, that's too fast or that's too slow or I'm not feeling good for this pace. I think that can have a huge impact on how you actually feel. That track from So 195. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Matt Fox, who is the founder of Sweat Elite, that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. But for those of you who aren't, we go into what that is in the interview. In short, we discuss the training patterns and habits of the world's best runners and uh, the methodologies of the world's best running coaches. And this includes runners like Eliud Kipchoge, Mo Farah, David Rudisha, and coaches like uh, Renato Canova in particular, but also uh, we discuss uh, Arthur Lydiard a little bit and uh, Alberto Salazar, who is uh, Mo Farah's coach. Before we get into the interview, however, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. I just recently listened to uh, Chris McCormack's Macas audiobook, his uh, autobiography, I'm Here to Win. And that was a great book that I highly recommend, by the way. Uh, in it, he talks about his struggles in Kona, uh, specifically with nutrition and hydration and how it took him a really long time and uh, hanging out with bodybuilders and discussing with them to figure out the hydration and electrolyte equation. And when he started actually preloading uh, with electrolytes, that's when he started to, to sort those things out because he was a bigger guy. Uh, he had a big sweat rate and probably lost a lot of electrolytes as well. Uh, so that's on, that's when he started to actually avoid cramps that he used to get every single year in Kona. And uh, unfortunately for him, precision hydration wasn't uh, around when he first started racing in Kona, but now they are. So you can benefit from their free online sweat test, which is a simple quiz that you can take in a few minutes time on precisionhydration.com. That will give you a free strategy for your next race. And it will tell you how much electrolytes you should consume and that strategy will be based on a great estimate of your sweat rate and sweat sodium content. Until the, until the end of August, you can get 20% off your precision hydration orders with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW20. And if you have never used a pH before, then you can try your first box or tube for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. Go to precisionhydration.com and check them out. And thank you to ROCA. Roka are really proud of the fact that every product they build is thoughtfully designed and rigorously tested and meticulously perfected. Roka's employees are athletes themselves, so they're always trying to solve real-world problems that they face to ensure that they and us are ready on race day. And uh, now they're bringing attention to the fine details of their products in a campaign called Details Matter. So in the coming episodes, you'll hear what some of the fine details that the people that are actually working at Roka who are, as I said, athletes themselves, find are the all-important small details that can make a big difference. And this week, I highlight a detail that comes from Mark at Product Design. It's about the Maverick wetsuits. And Mark writes, I loved the discovery of the fit numbers printed on the wetsuits. There is a 1 at the knee, a 2 at the elbow joint, and a 3 for the top of the shoulder. These numbers subtly make sure that I have the suit positioned correctly for the best fit possible. 
No more worrying if I have the suit on properly. I simply check that the numbers align. So that's a great one. I had not noticed that. So it was good to, uh, to find that out to make sure that I put it on properly when I do next time. I'll make sure to do that. You can get 20% off your entire order on roca.com with the promo code TTS and roca is R-O-K-A.com. Without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Matt Fox from Sweat Elite. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very well. How about, how about yourself? Very good as well. Excited for, for this talk. Uh, Sweat Elite is, uh, is a website, a blog that I've been following for quite some time, and I'm one of your uh, subscribers. And, uh, but for those uh, listeners that may not be aware, what is Sweat Elite? Can you give the introduction of uh, what it is, what you do, and, and how you started it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess what, what most people that, uh, or, or what subscribers and people that follow Sweat Elite know it as is, is it's a website or, or a company, should I say, because we share a lot of information off our website on social media about elite running training methods. Um, when I say running training, it sort of starts at the sprints all the way through to the ultra marathon distance, but the, most of the information is based around sort of middle distance, 800 meters, 1500 meters through to, to the marathon. So, um, that's what most people know it for, and that's what initially uh, was it was started for. Um, that's since branched out to also include um, coaching, training plans, and we're also even doing some training camps to Kenya. And, and those additional things only really came as a result of demand, uh, a lot of people asking for them over time. But for the first, uh, I guess, just under two years of running Sweat Elite, it was predominantly just sharing elite running training methods and insights. Um, and in the, in, in the methods, it also sort of includes uh, information on diet, strength training, even uh, even articles and, and, and sections of ebooks on altitude training and so on. So it's sort of, if you want to look at, for example, Elliot Kipchoge, the, the best marathoner of all time, or Mo Farah, and you want to know absolutely every aspect of what they do in training, I guess you can find that information on, on the Sweat Elite website. And what does your team look like? How, how many people do you have working, writing articles and uh, and doing all the things that you do? Yeah, it's actually a surprisingly small team. Um, I started it uh, myself almost three years ago now. Um, it was just me and one other person at the time, and, and now it's uh, five of us, so it's myself, three people writing, although two people write on more of a regular basis. One writes for occasionally, and then one programmer who does all of the tech stuff, um, and I basically just manage those four and just make sure it pieces together, and, and, I, and I also do all the, all the marketing and um, uh, social media uh, marketing and, and essentially everything to do with the internet marketing is, is what i do um yeah. so yeah it's just five of us at the moment um we are looking to it's actually very uh uh fortunate that you that you invited me to come on the show because we, we would like to ex- expand our triathlon at some point very soon we actually have been trying to for a while we just haven't sort of found the right person or people to, to help us do that so um you know when i heard it when you invited me to to come on the podcast i was excited about the opportunity because um triathlon is a space that i've been interested in for a while i'm a runner myself but i know quite a lot of triathletes and uh, some of the listeners of this show may remember an athlete called brag colorfelt from australia who, who who was quite good through sort of 2004 to 2012 um i i lived with him for quite a while and and i actually uh he had Jan Frodeno come and stay with him uh, for about six months in 2007, the year before he won the Olympics. And I was living with Jan at the time. And at oh, the time, wow. he, wasn't such a, he wasn't such a big, big, big name at the time. Of course, he was one of Germany's 
Germany's best triathletes, but it was before he won that um, Beijing Olympics. So I've always sort of had a bit of an in with triathlon. I, as I said, I'm not a triathlete myself, but I know a few top guys. So I, I want to branch out into that space at some point soon. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I remember that uh, in some of your emails uh, some time ago, you, you have mentioned that you're looking to maybe expand into triathlon. So, so that will be exciting when it happens. But uh, but even before that, endurance sports is very similar across the board. There are some nuances to the different disciplines, of course, but the, the main principles remain the same, which is why uh, triathletes can learn from cyclists, runners, swimmers, and, and vice versa. So... So we're going to focus on the running part, but uh, a lot of the things that we'll discuss, I'm sure, will apply very well to triathlon in general, but to the other disciplines as well, to, to swimming and cycling. For sure. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So as I said, as, as you just pointed out, um, I've been purely had my head in the running space for the last three years. So everything on the Sweatily website at the moment is, is running. Um, and, but as you said, you know, a lot of it can be applied to the other, the other realms as well. Yeah. So so if we start with with this you have uh, a, such uh, a wealth of information on the website. Uh if somebody new comes to the website, what are your top 3 or 5 uh things that you've found across the board when it comes to to the information that you've put together? I guess the top 3 to 5 advice that you would give or or commonalities among the world's best runners and coaches that you've found. Yeah, sure. Well, when when I I knew that you were going to ask a, a question like this, it was actually a little bit of a different one to answer, simply because um, you know in, in triathlon the, the, the distances for running are, are, are tend to be when you're talking about Olympic distance through to Ironman, I guess, which are the most popular um, tri distances. The running is 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 predominantly aerobic, but but um, tr- you know we've we've been studying. Uh, training methods of, of runners from sprints all the way through the distance. So the philosophy is obviously very different. The training methods are very different. But one thing I have noticed across the board that is very similar amongst all of the very, very elite athletes, because I've, I've been very fortunate enough to actually spend time training with a lot of them or just if I'm not training physically with them, I'm just watching them. They all have very um, almost playful and very motivating training environments. Um, so, They'll turn up to training, they'll have a, a, at least sort of five or ten or in Elliot Kipchoge's case, um, 30 or 40 <laughs> other athletes that uh, are very motivated as well. The, you know, the coach is obviously very knowledgeable. So they turn up and they're within this sort of bubble where they're, they're, they're just surrounded by athletes that are just as motivated as they are or, or obviously similar. And they also tend to not take it too seriously as well. So, for example, um, I was in Ethiopia earlier this year and uh, Mo Farrell was training with his training camp and I was at the track uh, just before he was getting started his track session. He was kicking the football around with with the guys in his training group. You know, of course, he wasn't risking injury by doing anything crazy, but he was just having a laugh, having a play, talking about, I think it's Arsenal that he's a big fan of. If I'm wrong, I apologize, but he's a big fan of... No, I, I, I think you're right. I'm an Arsenal fan as well and, and I do remember that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, he was he was just talking nonstop about the game that he watched the other night, and they were having a laugh. and And it was very similar when I went to train with David Radisha. And those who don't, don't know David Radisha, he's the 800 meter Olympic champion and world record holder. He has a very similar training environment, surrounded by very talented and motivated people. Um, they're having a laugh at the start of training sessions. They're having a joke. They're not taking it too seriously. Kip Shogo is exactly the same. Usain Bolt. I haven't trained with Usain Bolt, but I've, I've, I know people that have, and I've watched videos. Very similar um they all have that in common um if i could think of anything because of course you can't 
look at Usain Bolt and, and Wayne Van Niekerk and Nelly Kipchoge's training, they're, they're obviously training for completely different events. But um, that's one thing they definitely have in common that was almost a little bit surprising to me how, um, how, how, uh, how can I put it, like they weren't too serious about training when they were there. Of course, they trained very hard. And when, when the whistle went off and they started the intervals, they were dead serious about what they were doing, but they were just having a good time and making sure they were not taking it too seriously surrounding, um, you know, before and after training. That was interesting. Um, the other things, uh, I think in particular, if we're going to talk about more specifically to triathlon and, and um, the, the longer distance running, um, I think one thing that I've definitely come to learn that I didn't really know before is how important long tempo running is. <laughs> um, so all of the guys, more or less, I, I don't think I could think of any that, that aren't at the elite level um, from 10K through to marathon. They're all doing uh, threshold training, uh, very, very long thresholds uh, or tempo running on a, on a weekly basis. Um, that's not something I, – I, I came from – I was a middle distance runner myself, so I was an 800-meter, 1500-meter runner, so the training's a little bit different. But I didn't really realize how, I guess, important that type of training was. And it's, you know, it's, it's almost common sense to some people that have had their head in that or have been a marathon or a 10K runner for a long period of time. But um, I guess I do know of, for example, runners in Australia or in Europe that, that are on the cusp of being elite level that I think don't do uh, long enough tempo runs. Um, so, for example, they'll do 20 or 25-minute um, or even 30-minute tempo runs, and there's absolutely no doubt that that's beneficial. Um, but, you know, Mo Farah, Elia Kipchoge, all of these guys that are really at the elite level of 10K through to marathon, they're doing tempo runs of over, uh, you know, not, not all year, but when they're really looking to peak, they're doing tempo runs of an hour or, or up to, you know, in, in Kipchoge's case, two hours plus with their heart rate at, you know, right around their anaerobic threshold zone. So that's, I think, more specifically talking about the training, something that's more common. You asked for three to five things. The other two things I I noted down because they're really, they were really clear to me that the two sort of common things. It was, number one was the, you know, the attitude and atmosphere in the training environment, it being relaxed, fun, but also surrounded by very similar athletes to themselves. Um, and two, talking more specifically about the training and, and focusing on the longer distance running events, um, the long tempo work that was, I guess, longer than I expected. Um, I can't really think of anything else off my head that's clear cut in terms of similar across the board, so I'll leave it at, at those two. Um, but I'm sure some of the other questions that you asked later in this interview, we can, we can come up with yeah, another for sure. way. Um, but yeah. I think, I think definitely the first point is, is the number one thing because I, I see a lot of, even in my own friends, they sort of try and prepare for a, for a marathon. They might be shooting for a, for a 220 or a 225 marathon, which is, which is obviously pretty quick. And, and they try and do it without a training group around them and without a coach. And I sometimes think, yeah, that's possible. There's no doubt that that's doable, but it's, it's tough. It's really hard mentally more than anything to have to motivate yourself to, to, to get out there and, and do it all on your own without, without any sort of support and, you know, when I've spent some time with these with these elite running groups, it's it's, it's clear to me how easy it is for them to turn up for training because it's just so so much fun and so motivating. Yeah, I, I think I think that for for amateur athletes, it's uh, sort of like the sad reality that you may not have the opportunity because of mm, time yes. commitments, etc., to to join a training group. It's uh, just simply an, an efficiency thing you you need to quickly be able to just uh, get out the door and do a run or get on the on the indoor true. trainer. 
but but the other thing that you mentioned there with not taking the training too seriously i think that's something that a lot of amateur athletes get wrong they take it too seriously and are too wrapped up in the the outcomes of a single workout and uh, and that's something that i think we can definitely learn from from the elites absolutely yeah i mean one story that shot to my mind when you actually said that last thing was um about two years ago now i guess this is when sweat elite sort of got put on the map and people got to knew about it got to know about it sorry myself and my colleague who's one of the main writers we went to uh to Kenya and, and spend a month with Kipchoge's training group. And he, he, does, he does a long tempo run every Thursday, uh, alternating between 30 kilometers one week and 40 kilometers the next week. And one run, um, it was a 40K run. He, they did it a lot slower than they normally do. So they're not, they normally run it at about sort of, I think their fastest is about 320, 322 per kilometer. And they normally run sort of somewhere between there and about three. 30, 335 per kilometer. On this one week, for whatever reason, they ran about 345 per kilometer, I think it was, 343. It was quite a bit slower than normal. And at the end of it, we we, we were a bit surprised at why it was so slow. And one of the athletes, uh, we sort of asked one of the athletes, oh, you know, how'd you go? And they said, oh, we didn't go very fast today. And it's almost impossible for me to describe how he said it, but to, to try and summarize it in a couple of words, they didn't seem to care. <laughs> they just they got the run done. It wasn't as good as they normally do it. Maybe uh, from memory, this is almost two years ago now. It was a little bit windy, it was a little bit muddy, but it didn't phase them in the slightest that that day wasn't as good as the week before. It was just they got the effort done. Uh, sorry, they, you know, they put the effort into it. They got the distance done, and they just accepted it immediately that it wasn't their best training run. And they went inside and had a laugh and had their tea as, as, as they would normally. And I think what you just said before I told that story was people can get really hung up on, on a training session if they don't do it the way that they did it two weeks ago or they're not improving or, or whatever. And that's something that's, that's, that's definitely not visible to me in the elite, in the elite. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, they sort of make sure they get it done and occasionally they will pop out of a, a, very, a very impressive training session on the track or training run, but it's more about turning up and getting the consistency and, and not really judging each individual session. When you mentioned there the, the athletes that have this like playful, not-too-serious approach, uh, it struck me that all of the, the athletes that you mentioned, they, they have African heritage. And uh, do you see the same thing? Uh, in uh, in European Australian runners as well that they they don't take the uh, the training too seriously they don't get too hung up on it or is it different and it might that be an explanation for why the African or uh, runners with African descent are dominating? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I do think that the Africans, um, I think it is part of their heritage. Uh, absolutely, I haven't spent a lot of time with European and Australian. Um, teams, we, we, I, I've been, been able to source through a, different, a number of different ways a lot of information about their training, which is then published on the website, but I haven't actually spent a lot of time with them, so I'm probably not the best person to ask that question. Um, but I, from when I was a, 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 I guess I was a semi-elite 800, meter runner, I never qualified for the Olympics, but I guess I was sort of close on a number of occasions. Um, the groups that I was training with were somewhat like that, but nowhere near as much of a, of a sort of a, a playful environment as what I saw over there. So I think that you're right with what you said, that it's, I think it's part of their, you know, who they are and their heritage. But um, again, I'm probably not, I'm not 100% sure because it's not like I've gone and spent a month training with the top European runners. I've, I've more so been able to talk with them over Skype, for example, or, or email and get information and publish it. Right. So, yeah. 
And if, if we talk about where, what you've seen, we talked about some common patterns, but uh, where are uh, the patterns uh, ceasing to exist? Where might philosophies differ? And even though runners still get a lot of success, and uh, I guess this is about how there are many ways to skin a cat when it comes to, to training and just general approach to, uh, to being a, a runner or endurance athlete. But have you seen any examples of that? Yeah. Um, so again, we, we do publish um, and study information on, on all the events. And I think in particular in the middle distance events, which I won't speak about too long because they're not too, um, I guess, uh, they don't relate too much to the, to, to the tribe, but um, there, there is uh, quite a number of different philosophies in the middle distance events, that is 800 metres and 1500 metres, purely because of the energy systems. It's almost 50-50 anaerobic. Um, and aerobic so there's a number of different schools of thought with with um i guess how much 400 meter speed you need to run a fast 800 um so there's the there's the arthur lydiard approach where it's you know a whole lot of mileage and then sharpen up just before the just before the peak race and and your, your aerobic system carries you through and then there's so the other school of thought which um I don't know if you put a coach's name on it but there's you know there's a number of groups that do it that, that's more based on um 400 meter speed but when you go up to the 5k 10k half marathon and marathon in particular um half marathon and marathon uh, what's clear to me is is uh, i guess the person's name that that comes to mind if you call it a philosophy around his name is renato canova that seems to be by far the most um successful training method that we've um come to understand um so canova's method is basically on 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 training at the right pace and slowly over time extending that pace out until you're able to run essentially almost the whole distance in training at very close to your race pace, as opposed to Lydiard, for example, who would start off and, and continue to run quite a long way off race pace but build your aerobic capacity off, off somewhat, um, I wouldn't call it slow running, but it, it's, it's, no, it's not very close to your race pace. So, so someone that's trying to run, a, 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 a let's just say, a, a three-hour marathon, which is, which is about 4.15 per kilometre. Um, following Canova's method, you, you would be trying to run in training at least two times, possibly even three times a week uh, around that pace and trying to slowly over time extend that the duration or distance out that you can run at that pace, whereas following um, uh, Arthur Lydiard's method, you would be running at more like 4.45 or, or five minutes per kilometre and doing longer runs even even very quickly getting up to sort of 30k 35k but not going too close and then as the time gets closer to the event you shorten those runs and try and come closer to race pace and and Lydiard's method you know does absolutely uh work for some people but if if we look at you know the top 50 times run by male and female in the half marathon and marathon 10k and we look at who coached someone who advised them. It's it's it's, it's quite alarming. I guess or surprising how many uh, are, are advised by Renato Canova. Um, and Elliot Kipchoge does forward that camp, although he's not coached by uh, by Canova. He's coached by Patrick Sang. Patrick Sang just happens to be a very good friend of Canova, and, and they essentially share the same method. Um, so yeah, when we're talking about those you know distances of 10k through to the marathon, um, uh, we've come to realize that we came to realize very. Very quickly when studying this, this, that that method was by far the most successful amongst the elite end, and 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 I, and I do like the way that you know whenever I'm answering something, you're sort of trying to relate it more to the amateur side of things, which is which is something we sweat elite doesn't do very much, but I, I, I like to I like to do it. Um, it is a little bit tricky to to be able to, um, or I'd love to discuss this with you. I guess uh, that method very well may not be the best for an amateur. 
because it may be a recipe for, for injury. Um, of course, there's no black and white answer to that, but but immediately going out at your race pace and trying to, to sort of extend that, you know, duration or distance in training, it, it, it's tough on the, on the body. And and a lot of these really uh, good runners that are, that are running these very quick times, sub 205 for the marathon or, or sub one hour for the half marathon for males, these guys have been training for for a long time before they're before they're really tackling this method properly, you know. Whereas an amateur very well may be just starting out and researching this stuff, and it, it couldn't, it may not be the best thing for them to, to immediately jump into this sort of this sort of training. So, um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a it's a tough one to relate to the amateur side of things, and I'm I'm speaking purely from what we've researched though on the elite end. Yeah, yeah and, and another side that the thing that comes to mind is that on the amateur side, if you're your, your, when your race pace for a marathon, for example, is uh, basically very close to your easy run pace, then you don't get a quality workout if you're necessarily if you're running at race pace. So maybe the best thing then to do is to actually do intervals that are significantly faster in race pace and actually just improve your your physiology or your metabolism. Whereas for the elite runners, as you say, they are close to uh, close to their anaerobic threshold when they do those sort of race pace runs. So they get the quality running in, and then of course, on top of that, they do a lot of uh, very easy, easy running. Yeah. And uh, so, so that's that's a different like what race pace is and how intense it is and how much quality is it, it is is very different depending on your level, exactly. uh, your ability as a runner, and and the distance that you're training that's for. Exactly right. Yes. So what about? Uh, but but that's uh, so coming back to the original question then. It uh, seems to me then that there aren't uh, there, there weren't anything really that you found that is uh, uh, where philosophies clash uh, significantly. If you see that most of the top times are run on a Canova style training rather than Lydiard, we have the Lydiard approach. It exists, but it's not really used by the by the top runners or the top times. It seems. Yeah, speaking more specifically about the ten k through the marathon, that, that that's correct. I, I don't see a lot of. Uh, philosophy cl- clashing amongst the very elite end. If, if you take that down to the, the sub-elite end, I believe, which, which again, we haven't really studied, I, I'm just purely um, guessing this because I'm, you know, I'm trying to currently run about a 230 marathon. So um, around my level, there seems to be a lot of different ideas. <laughs> um, but uh, when you look at the very top end, uh, not so much. I, I, I think yeah. uh, make it pretty much everywhere. Yeah. It's very interesting. Can can you talk about the the mindsets of the top runners? We talked about how they have a playful approach to to training and don't take it too seriously. Uh, is there anything in addition to that uh, with regard to training or just general approach to life and and racing that uh, that you've found? Uh, yeah, the number one thing is what what you just said. I, I think another thing, and it sounds very basic, but I think it's definitely worth pointing out. Um, uh, it, most of the top guys have a very clear or a very um, or a number of very clear goals in their mind. Um, and again, this sounds very uh, obvious and very uh, like easy to do yourself, but I think it's worth pointing out. Um, so uh, David Radisha, when we spent some time with him, um, his coach, who's a very famous coach in Kenya called um, uh, Brother Colm, he, he kept telling us how, uh, I guess, desperate in a way David Radisha was or, or motivated to win the Olympics and break the eighth in the middle of record. He he had it up on his 
on his wall at home. He spoke about it constantly, not in an arrogant way, but he just he was so fixated on this on achieving this thing that he just didn't let it go. And he actually failed for a couple of years um, to get to the level that he wanted to. Um, I guess 2010 and 2011 were, were not such great years for him. Um, and then in 2012, when he actually broke the world record in the 100 metres and won the Olympics at the same time, it all sort of came to fruition. But the point was, for those sort of four to five years before 2012, he was just really fiercely fixated on on this goal. Um, Mo Farah was the same, from what I understand, leading up to the, um, the Olympics when he won the double at London. All he wanted to do for three or four years is very clear-cut in his mind was to win in front of his home um, crowd, the 5K and the 10K. Elia Kipchoge desperately wanted to win the 2016 uh, Olympics for the marathon, and then after that he's been wanting to break two hours in the marathon. And these guys have very clear-cut goals. There's no, um, oh, I'm going to jump in this and hope for the best, even though they may appear like that sometimes on, on interviews. I think they just may, they might not want to sound too... Too arrogant, I'm not sure. Um, but I know in their mind um, that the very good, the very top guys are very clear on what they want to achieve. Um, and I don't see that a lot amongst people um, in general, I think, that are trying to do something. You occasionally do, but sometimes people are just sort of uh, – and that's fine. I mean, some people might not, not be sure about what they want to achieve. They might just want to finish an Ironman, for example, or, or finish a marathon. And that, that's fine as well. But – um, you know, looping back to the to the question you've asked, I think the mindset of these guys is all very similar. And they're very clear on what they want. Um, I think another thing is, and this sort of relates to mindset, but but um, sort of doesn't, is they're all ex- they're all very good at listening to their bodies in training. And if they have a problem, they 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 deal with it very quickly. I, I noticed that um, across all of them as well. And 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 it it starts to make me wonder how many people there have been out there that could have possibly been as good as Mo Farah or as good as Elite or as good as Radisha that that didn't make it because they had consistent injuries or or they didn't listen to their body properly so they burnt themselves out, for example. But one thing I did notice about all these top guys is they're very good at knowing, oh, I've got a, I'm, I'm a little bit cooked, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm maybe overtraining a little bit, let's pull it back for a week or two and and drop the mileage. That doesn't mean anything. I'm not going to lose any fitness by dropping from 180K to 130K for two or three weeks, or I'm going to take two or three days off to deal with this niggling um, Achilles uh, tendonitis or whatever it may be. And they don't tend to push this. I guess that what I'm trying to say is that they know when there's something slightly off that they need to, to pull back on. And they're very good at noticing what the, like the, where, where that line is. Um, because of course you have to be training extremely hard to be achieving the things that that they are that they're achieving. So you have to be having that workload on you, and you can't just wake up and go, "Oh, I'm feeling a bit tired today. I have to take a day off." It's not like that. They're able to to, to be aware of when something just feels a little bit off, and they and they deal with it very quickly. I think that's very important. So it's probably not answering your question exactly, but it is something that I that came to mind. Well, that is an extremely important point, I think, because that's something that that all of us can can learn from. And and I think both of those points actually, uh, they you can boil them down to that they have a very long term perspective yeah. to their training and improvement. Yes, because if you don't take time off when you when you when you feel a bit cooked, when you feel that you have a niggle coming on, 
then over the you might miss a few sessions over the next few days because of that but over the long term you will do so much many many more training sessions than you would have otherwise if you get really injured or, or really overtrained so and the same thing with the with the goal i think a lot of of us amateurs we set goals but we might set set a goal to uh, complete an Ironman in in three months' time, and but uh, these guys they have have a goal that lasts uh, an entire uh, Olympic cycle, mm, so yes. to win win the next Olympics. So and that sets them up for success because they have the time to uh, to really do it properly over the time that it that endurance sports requires. It takes a long time to uh, and a lot of patience to to really get to uh, to any significant goal. Yes, exactly, and it, and it reminds me of an, an article that's written on the satellite website by Alberto's. Um, what's a, it's, it's a it's something that was pulled up in an Alberto Salazar interview that we sort of highlighted, and it was about playing what you just said about playing the long term game and about not getting too caught up in in thinking oh this marathon I'm, I'm i'm training for in in two months i've got a bit of a niggle i can't i can't afford to to miss two important training sessions because i might lose fitness for the marathon in two months which is just ridiculous <laughs> and um yeah and thinking more about well you know i've actually got one or two more marathons this year that i have to get to as well so i don't want to risk really making this injury much worse just to get to the start line of this one um you know so as you just pointed out it's more it is definitely about playing the long-term game and i think they're all i've noticed they're all very good at that yeah the next topic that that i have to discuss is training intensity distributions it's something that we've discussed quite a lot on on this podcast and and uh, in recent years there, there has been a lot of research on on polarized training for example uh, but it sounds already to me, and from what I've read on your website and, and read uh, elsewhere about the Canova methods, for example, is that uh, the training of the elite runners uh, isn't very top-heavy on speed work. It is a lot of tempo work, as you described, long long tempo runs. Uh, so, so how would you uh, can you elaborate a bit on the training intensity distribution and, and where it sits uh, with uh, uh, as it pertains to I guess what's uh, what's discussed in in this day and age in endurance sports in general? Yeah, um, Canova. It's an, it's an interesting uh, question. Is Canova's training philosophy? polarized or not because in a way it just sort of depends which way you look at it. in a way it is a bit but in a way it's not because he he does have the he does have um or he does prescribe sorry the the two to three very uh i guess hard workouts in, in a week typically and then he sort of adds in one or two progressive what he calls progressive runs which aren't a session and they're not an easy run um, these progressive runs tend to be somewhere between 10 and 25 kilometers typically maybe 15 or 20 and they'll be starting at, at an easy pace and progressing to, I guess, the last 5 to 10K at close to anaerobic threshold or at anaerobic threshold. And these sessions are definitely not what you would call, or these runs are not what you would call easy. But then in the training program, there are a lot of very easy 40 to 60-minute runs. So um, take the progressive runs out, it looks quite polarized. Take, add them in, it sort of looks a little bit sort of yes and sort of no. Um, but then again, Canova also is quite good at living back to the point we just spoke about five minutes ago at, at, at making sure the athlete listens to their, to their body. And, and when I was in Kenya, I've been to Kenya a few times. Um, at one time I spoke uh, at length with, um, Sondre Moen, who's the Europe, he was the European marathon record holder until Mo Farah broke it. Uh, the Norwegian, he ran uh, 205, uh, 40 something from memory. And he mentioned that he's trained by Canova. Um, and he mentioned that uh, Canova would ha- always have a rough um, plan ahead of them, but he would always be very willing to adjust it depending on how Sunday was feeling. So if he woke up, Sunday woke up one day and did an easy shakeout run in the morning of 30 or 40 minutes, 
um, at 6 a.m. and they had another session planned for sort of 2 or 3 p.m. and, and Sonos didn't feel right, they would they would do another, they would do a, like a sort of a, a, an easy to progress it an easy to moderate run in the afternoon and, and, and push the other session forward. So Canova is quite good at not at, at adjusting the plan based on how athletes feel. And um, that's very, that's very important in my opinion, across the board of all the training for any endurance event. Um, but yeah, back to the point of, is it polarized or not? Um, it will sort of, and sort of, sort of not. Um, it, I don't think it, it, it really is, but at the same time, he almost can adjust to be a little bit more polarized based on how the athlete's feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah um, it, because if the athlete uh, is tired, he will make them rest a little bit more. Yeah. I, I guess it's another plan that you would uh, like be, expect to get good results from if you follow it strictly as is without acknowledging what you're feeling and uh, whether you have any needles yeah. as we discussed already. But uh, but if you adjust it, if you if if you are communicating with your coach and and you are uh, honest with yourself as well, then uh, then it can work. And and it doesn't sound that it's polarized uh, for sure, not. But again, it comes down to what we talked about previously. There are, in some cases, many many ways to to skin a cat. And uh, well, this is on the elite, and it seems the best way to to skin the marathon or or distance running cat in general. Yeah, yeah. And and as I sort of said about ten minutes ago, these athletes can possibly handle or they definitely can handle. You know, they, they've been training um, so much for so long that they, they're they able to handle uh, th- two to three very hard workouts in a week and two to three moderate to um, hard progressive runs in a week and the rest easy. Whereas if you try to prescri- if you try to give that to someone that started running two or three years ago, you know, that's a recipe for, for a stress fracture or tendonitis very quickly. So, um, you know, and we do try and point out on, in our articles from time to time, maybe not arguably not enough, you know, don't, don't necessarily think this is the best way for everyone. This is just what the elites are doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Canova does point that out quite a bit in his, uh, he, he tends to blog quite a bit on let's run. Yeah. And, um, he does point that I've, I've read, uh, I've read him say that a few times when he's like, this is what these guys do. But remember <laughs> these Kenyans are 26 and they've been running over a hundred, they've, they've been running a hundred kilometers a week or, or close to it from the age of 15 to 20 and then 140 to 180 kilometers a week after that. So they've just got, they're so strong that they're able to handle this sort of training now. So that's important to, to consider as well. Yeah, yeah. And how much do they actually run uh, significantly faster than the marathon pace, if we're talking about marathoners, for example? Or do, oh, let's just talk about anaerobic threshold. Do they do a lot of speed work above anaerobic threshold, or is it mostly capped around that anaerobic threshold sort of level? Uh, Canova's um, philosophy seems to, to normally include at least one session per week of intervals that are faster than, than anaerobic threshold. So it's it's from what he calls about 110 uh, I think about 108 to 115% from memory uh, of marathon pace. And, and of course it's difficult to work out. Um, but it's, it's, it's normally, a, a, I guess, close to 5k or 10k pace. Um, and so that is slightly above anaerobic threshold. And, and those intervals may be uh, 400 meter repeats, uh, 1k repeats or 600s. Um, the volume of that specific interval session. So it tends to be on the track. It tends to be around once a week, maybe, or, or sometimes two times in a three week period. Um, the, the total volume tends to be between about eight and 12 kilometers uh, worth of intervals that is. And that can be, uh, I've seen a lot of different examples of his sessions. There doesn't seem to be a, a staple two or three. Um, but, but I have seen, uh, for example, 25 times 400. Uh, I've seen 10 times 1K. I've seen 
sort of different um, distances in the session. So I've seen some sets of one k's and then some sets of four hundreds in the same in the same session. That is, so maybe something like five by one k and ten by four hundred. Um, but it tends to it, it always the, the pattern I see there is that it tends to be at about five to ten k pace. Um, around eight to 12 kilometers worth of, uh, total volume. The recovery always tends to be, uh, around 200 meters jog. So about one and a half to two minutes. And, and, and I, and I, I have read often that it, that's not specifically timed. Sometimes it is, but it's, it's often not, um, that, that the recovery that is. So yeah, to answer your question, that, that is something above anaerobic threshold pace. And I, and I don't see it in Canova's methods, uh, much more than once a week. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, on that note, uh, in your articles about Eliud Kipchoge, one thing that, that really uh, stood out to me is that uh, you commented that he never seems to be maximally exerted even in these sessions that sound pretty hard. Uh, is this something <laughs> that is uh, just Eliud or is it uh, common with most of the top runners? I don't – yeah, I actually do think it's it's somewhat unique to him because Farah trains very hard. Um, I've never asked him the question, do you actually push yourself to the limit in training? But it certainly appears like he does. <laughs> David Radisha definitely does from time to time. I would say normally one – here we did, sorry. He's, he seems to be um, – I'm not sure if he's retired or not now, but he hasn't raced for a while. This is the 800-meter walk record holder again. Um and why I keep mentioning Radisha is we, we I spent six weeks training with that group. Um, he, he trains very hard uh, one to two times a week uh, to the limit, to the point where he's you know lying on his back for five minutes after the last rep. So, um, so I do think it, it is unique to Kipchoge in a way. Um, we mentioned that, and then some people even questioned that when we published that. Oh, does he really? Or maybe he's just good at hiding that he's hurting. But but NN running team have mentioned a few times on their social media channels that he doesn't push himself to the limit. Um, and it was even quoted somewhere, I think it was on Instagram, that I think someone asked in an Instagram q and I think it was, um, do the athletes in, in Kipchoge's group run 100% in training? And the answer was something along the lines of, no, they limit at ninety percent and they save the rest for the race. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah. So I think that is somewhat unique to him. And and when we watched him train, we we watched him train um, a number of times, at track sessions, interval sessions, uh, tempo runs. He works very hard, but he we never saw him red line. Like we never saw him really struggle and and be on you know on his knees or, or anything like that he was always very quickly into a jog <laughs> after this is after the last repetition um yeah when he finished the last repetition or the last kilometer of any run or or, or interval he was able to essentially jog straight away yeah um you know so that tells you that he's not at his limit yeah i, I think there are different schools of thought here for sure i, I definitely agree with uh, with elliot's uh, thinking that uh that it, saving the uh, the one hundred percent push for for the race and going very hard, but not uh, not at your maximum in in training. And I, I see that in quite a lot of the professional triathlon coaches as well. We talked a bit before the interview, and I mentioned that I recommend you listen to the interview I did with uh, Joel Filial, who is uh, one of the most successful coaches, and and they do the same thing, in particular in running, that uh, they they prescribe speed limits essentially for for the runners in or for the triathletes in in their squad. And, and it's not just him. There are many other coaches that do that, even though uh, for sure there are a lot of triathletes that will do the uh, David Rudisha style as well and uh, and be completely knackered after their session. So it's not as, as if there is uh, a one and only way to do things. But uh, but it's interesting to to hear how, how different people uh, approach their sessions. 
Yeah, absolutely. I do think there's definitely not one way to do it. And what works for Kipchoge may not work for Farah, and what works for Farah may not work for Kipchoge and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, one main thing that we've definitely learned since starting this website is this, there's definitely not one way to do anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, with running. Uh, definitely certain things uh, and, uh, I guess, ideas suit some people and, and other things suit others. Um, so because for example, some coaches just uh, believe that f- becoming more flexible has helped their athletes. And Kipchoge is one of the least flexible people I've ever seen. Um, so, you know, you got a question, you know, and, and, and but, but I have honestly heard that, um, that of, of some pretty good, not, not a, I can't even remember who it was, but, but I have heard of, of coaches and athletes saying that when they focus on doing more stretching, it has helped them. Um, and you've got to think that that could be true, but then, you know, then you've got Kipchoge that, that can't, that can't even, you know, even nearly touch his, touch his toes if he tries to stretch his hamstrings. So it's, yeah, there's not one, one way to do it. And I think that's, that's potentially one reason why um, it's such an exciting and interesting uh, space that not only running, but the, the triathlon, there's just so many ways to do it. And finding the way that suits you best is, is a, is a puzzle and it's an, is an exciting one. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also a large part of the role of to to find the right way for individual athletes and, and not uh, uh, put a, a cookie cutter plan on 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 the athlete that they're supposed to coach individually. So uh, finding the right approach for for this particular individual. Uh, but speaking about the, the flexibility yes. and uh, what what kind of like strength and conditioning and other supplemental training do elite runners do? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is probably the one space that's probably the most varied. Um, uh, so, you know, we spoke about training specifically running methods in the long, so the long threshold work, um, and the race pace work being very common across the board, uh, strength training and flexibility seems to be very varied. So, uh, Kipchoge's camp, uh, do not do any strength training in the 12 weeks leading into a marathon. Although saying that it sounds like, and it looks like they're doing a little bit of core work now. Um, which I think is new to them, but weight, like in terms of strength and weights, they do a block of, um, weight training before their specific period starts. So the specific periods of the final 12 weeks before a marathon and they do around six to eight weeks, uh, two to three times per week in the gym where they do quite lightweight, uh, work, um, general strength, a lot of, uh, there's a really cool video actually on the, on the NN running team um, Facebook page, I think it is, or it could even be on YouTube, and it shows them in the gym doing some exercises and some weights. It doesn't appear that they do anything very heavy. Um, but in the 12 weeks leading into the marathon, they don't do any weights at all. Uh, confirmed, we, we, we asked a few people that, and they, they said they don't do any. Whereas, Kipch, uh, whereas uh, Mo Farah um, does very heavy weights, uh, or at least he did when he was racing 5K and 10K, uh, and he was training with Alberto Salazar. So he would spend two sessions a week in the gym and they would be doing uh, heavy squats, um, a lot of calf work, calf raises with weights, uh, some plyometric uh, exercises. So, yeah, there's two very different uh, methods there. Um, Radish's group, uh, surprisingly, being a super quick 200-meter, uh, 400-meter runner. He's an 800-meter runner, but he's very fast. So the distance is shorter than that. He did uh, very little strength work. 
Um, they did a lot of plyometric work, so just on the ground, uh, bounding and, and, and so on, but they didn't use any weights. Um, and, and, and some of the other top athletes I've, yes, some, I, some, I, some that I know of do, do a lot of sort of very heavy lifting and some don't do any at all. Um, so that's something that's, that's really varied and something that I've never really quite mm. found any pattern. <laughs> with because it, it, again it's it, going back to the point we spoke about a few minutes ago i guess some things work for some people and some things you know work for others so um i don't think there seems to be a clear answer there and i think it's something worth experimenting with under the guidance of a professional um you know uh maybe trialing um doing some weights for for a three to six month period you probably won't see any any benefit in doing for less time than that um but yeah, there doesn't seem to be a specific training session or sorry, a, a training, uh, strength training plan that I've seen that works for distance runners because Kip Choge does very little heavy lifting yeah. and so does David Radisha for that matter. So yeah, flexibility wise, um, I guess the same thing. Uh, Kip Choge's group did very little of it. Uh, Radisha's group did quite a bit of it. Um, after training, they did a lot of stretching. Farrow's group, I'm not sure. Uh, I think they did like a uh, sort of a bit of it, but not a lot. I never really asked him about stretching that much though. Um, so again, pretty varied. So, so both the strength work and the flexibility work is, is seems to be fairly individual and varied. So no clear answer there in the elite space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, moving on, how do these athletes uh, use, if they do use, which I think that they might not, but data in their training? Do they run with uh, heart rate monitors at, and uh, pace, or uh, or is it just pure running uh, on the on the dirt roads up at altitude in Kenya? And how are their sessions dis- uh, prescribed by their coaches? So I, lo- I love this question. I love speaking about it because it's super interesting. Because I I quite like data and I understand. I really understand why people like data. It's it's a way to track what you're doing. It's a try to it's a way to compare your your, your sessions in, in in detail to what you did say a month ago or, or a year ago. It's it's a great way to compare yourself to others. And there's so many numbers and figures there to track in terms of lactate thresholds, um, uh, lactate. Um, uh, uh, figures, uh, mind blanking the name, but when you sort of prick yourself and you measure your lactate levels, um, heart rates, there's all these things. But in, in, in Kenya specifically, and I guess also Ethiopia, we, we went there earlier this year, um, a lot of them don't even wear a watch, like let alone a heart rate monitor and, te- <laughs> and, and measuring lactate levels. Like these guys run purely on on feel and uh and i think that really works for them um so i was fortunate enough and i've touched on this already a few times but to race the middle distance uh, events for quite some time and 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 i went through a fairly lengthy period in the middle of my career where i didn't race very well um so i I ran my personal best at about the age of 20 this is about 800 meters at about 21 and then i sort of um plateaued for a few years and i went over to europe and I, i raced a lot of africans when i was over there and one thing that became very clear to me in that time when I was racing against the Africans was how clueless they were about like their splits and how fast they were running and what was going on in the race. And all they really wanted to do was win the race. And it came to a, it, it made me realize after, after a while how powerful this can be 
and how detrimental it can be when you're in the middle of a race and you're looking at your splits thinking, oh, that's too fast or that's too slow or I'm not feeling good for this pace. I think that can have a huge impact on how you actually feel. So I'm going a little bit far away from your original question, but it does loop back. Um, tracking your data uh, like really intensely I think can be good in many ways, but one thing I've really noticed in at least the high end, like uh, the elite uh, Africans, they don't really track it uh, at all. Um, so when you're looking at Kipchoge uh, preparing for the sub two hour marathon attempt, yes, there is quite a bit of data being tracked there because they're doing a whole lot of testing for, for a number of reasons. But in general, when he's preparing for a normal marathon, he's not under the, um, you know, Nike or Ineos, um, the, the, all, all this testing, um, they do very little tracking of, of data. So Kipchoge, of course, has a GPS watch and he takes notice of his pace and he, he has goals in his training um, pace-wise. But they when they're running these tempo runs, they don't, they don't really look at their splits very much. They don't um, get too hung up on oh, that. They, they, they wouldn't, uh, I highly doubt they have a clue what their heart rate is doing. <laughs> um, uh, Farrow is very similar. Um, Radish is very similar. And a lot of the really good at, uh, um, athletes that at least come out of Africa um, spend very little time tracking and thinking about their data. Um, when you move over to the U S and Europe, um, it's a little bit different. I think just purely because of the, the, I guess the culture, um, there is a little bit more of that, but I think there's definitely something to be said for running free. And what I mean by that is not getting too fixated on heart rate zones, um, paces and all these sort of things, because I think in some regards it can restrict you in a way. Um, and, and that's like a deep sort of subconscious, uh, you know, mental thing. It's like if, if your heart rates, um, I hope you can understand what I mean by that. Like if, if you're purely just looking at your heart rate all the time and, and thinking about what your pace is as relative to your heart rate, like you can almost lose track of just, just running for how you feel. Um, and I think that there's definitely something to be said for that because I mean, if you look at all the top guys, they're, they're, they're not tracking that or at least in Africa that is, they're not tracking that at all. And I think that they're really focused on winning, um, beating as many people as possible. And when that's all you're fixated on, you're not really thinking about, oh, is the pace too fast for me? Is it too slow for me? And panicking and letting all these sort of mental um, uh, games happen in your own mind, um, they, they, just don't, they just tend to just unleash and just get the most out of themselves. Um, so, yeah, very little data tracking at the top end, at least in Africa. I think a little bit more in, in sort of the Western world. But at the same time, um, I do know of uh, groups in Australia, at least, that, that's sort of the best, uh, the best running group here, Melbourne tra- uh, Track Club, who have quite a few Olympic representatives in the, in the longer distance events. They do a little bit of tracking of heart rate um, in, in threshold runs, but they don't they, – they are very uh, – they do re- really think a lot about trying to run free and trying to win races and, and, and beat as many people as possible and not get too hung up on splits and times and, and what all this data means when they're in the middle of races because that can play on your mind a lot, I think, and it can, it can almost restrict you in some ways. So I, I, I hope I'm not, um, you know, for the people out there that are very into the data side of things, I'm not necessarily saying that's, that's the wrong way to do it um, because I'll, I'll be honest and say I'm actually not very knowledgeable in that space, but I have noticed that amongst the, the elite guys that I've been at least um, taking notice of, they, they do uh, tend to restrict to some extent how much data they track because they want to just run by how they feel a lot of the time. 
I think that Mo Farah is a very interesting example there because he's uh, been trained in in the United Kingdom and then later on in the United States, which uh, you would supposed to be that uh, they are supposed to be like tech uh, savvy countries, and he must have had a lot of coaches that that are quite quite modern. Obviously Salazar, I don't know that much about Salazar in in the the details about how he prescribes sessions or anything like that, but just. From being in the United Kingdom and the United States, you would think that even though he's of African heritage, he might be somebody who uses data a bit more. But again, that that goes to show what uh, yeah what you're saying that they don't really care too much about it and and enjoy running running free quite a lot. And I think definitely everybody needs to to learn how to do any run at just a perceived effort. I actually just yesterday I yes. did my tempo run. Uh, with just a stopwatch i had a, a long run with four by 18 minutes and uh, my garmin has been giving me some problems sometimes it charges sometimes it doesn't charge and uh, <laughs> these last few days has been have been days where it doesn't charge so it was out of battery so uh yeah i just took my stopwatch and went for a run and uh, it was brilliant i actually enjoy it a lot when i when i do that because it, it also takes the pressure off from even though i try to not look at splits when i'm when i'm training i just look at them afterwards i do like that side of data to be able to look at what you did after the fact uh, but sometimes you you do cheat during training and, and look at what you're doing and then it uh, it is it adds an extra layer of pressure that doesn't necessarily make the training more effective on the on the contrary in, in many cases i think yeah 100 percent exactly yeah i definitely agree with that i i, I do what you um did was it yesterday the tempo run um i do that from time to time as well and just don't don't run with a um with a gps watch i just run with a stopwatch and i actually tend to really enjoy those 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 sessions as well um just run purely to how you feel and yeah i think it's definitely worth um worth doing from time to time so so how do their coaches prescribe sessions you you mentioned there uh kind of talking about 110 percent of marathon pace for the track sessions but uh, is it more so that they're just giving a distance and a description like tempo or progressive tempo or uh 25 by 400 at 5k or 10k pace perhaps for for that kind of session but uh, or what do they look like do you do you know that the details of the program yeah yeah, Canova tends to use the, the the two ideas of a percentage of race pace. Um, so you know, long runs uh, for him are obviously quite quite fast. So he tends to do a lot of um, prescribed long runs at ninety to ninety five percent of marathon pace, or he'll use the idea of of, of a goal pace, so ten k pace or five k pace. I think that's very common um, for coaches to be prescribing uh, sessions based on a, a goal pace. Um, but yeah, some others just just do prescribe a, a threshold run, so that won't that won't necessarily be at a certain pace. That will just be at a at that at that lactic um, uh, lactate threshold pace, which which is what most of the top athletes know how to do without even you know running with a heart rate monitor or, or, or a GPS watch. They'll just know how that feels. Um, and and some other coaches may prescribe it just based on a time. So they may say, okay, well, we're doing ten times one kilometer with with one minute rest, and we're trying to run them in in two fifty. Um, and, and and you know if you if you if you equate that, that very well may be their 10K pace, but they might might not actually call it that. So, yeah, um, it, it, is, it is a broad question, and some coaches prescribe it one way and some another. But I think um, I, I do coach quite a lot of a lot of people at the moment, and, and I tend to like the idea of prescribing it um, based on a goal pace. So the session may be um, uh, five times 1K at uh, 10K pace, and then um, 
uh, 10 times 400 meters at 5k yeah. pace, for example. Um, and, and, and that pace will be, will be their goal pace that, for example, that year. Um, yeah, I, I like to do it that way, but yeah, there is no clear cut answer there. And, and, and it really depends on the, on the coach. But, um, as I said, Canova tends to do a percentage of race pace or, or, uh, or goal pace and others just prescribe a time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so since you mentioned your coaching there, you, you have the coaching and, and you can find the details on the website for, for the listeners that will link to in the show notes. Uh, you also have training plans from 5K to the marathon. And uh, I'm curious about what aspects of the elite training findings that you've made have you incorporated into these training plans and what aspects have you not incorporated? As we talked about, some of those, these things may not be applicable to, to amateurs, whereas some of them will be. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, most of the training plans are based on Canova's methods, just really kind of dialed down, <laughs> um, not, not so intense. So we do, we we don't tend to um, add in so much of the pro- progressive runs, although I am a fan of them for people that can handle that sort of volume. But a lot of the training sessions are, are, are sort of um, based around what Canova prescribes. Um, and uh, they are uh, based on percentage of race pace or, as I said, um, a goal pace um we do mention in the plans um we, we tend to give people an option of so for example it'll be um six to ten times 1k and it'll mention that if you're able to it depends on how sort of where you are at your own um running journey if, you, if you've been running for a long period of time you might be able to handle the upper end of that if not the lower end of that so in general it's 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 sort of based around Canova's philosophy, um, but it's just uh, there are certain intensities that are dialed down a bit. There are certain runs that are cut out. Um, that is mostly the progressive runs. Um, but the long runs are still pretty uh, pretty much the same. Um, they're uh, very close to goal marathon pace. Um, that is if you that is if you're doing the, the marathon training plan. Um, but they they might not be quite as long as what Canova prescribes. So Canova likes to get right up to forty or even over forty k for those long runs. Um, and people that have been running for for, for maybe you know five plus years could do that. Otherwise, you might want to sort of top out at you know thirty four or thirty five k. So it gives people the option in there to to decide what they want to do. But um, it gives people at least a framework. And I think that the value in those training plans are only thirty nine US dollars, so they're not a huge investment. Um, is giving people structure. Um, some people just you know read all this information and go, okay, well I know sort of what's going on now, but I I, I want to have sort of a, a structure here and and a and something and a, just a guide. I think that's the the main reason why that's quite good. And of course there are lots of free guides out there, but I guess this one includes a lot of um, tips and and I guess just motivational um, quotes and information within the training plan from elite athletes. But it is based around Canova's philosophy as well. So so yeah, they are quite popular, especially the marathon one. We 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 tend to get a lot of people buy that one. Um, and from what I understand, people have uh, f- have raced well off it. So yeah fantastic uh in in that 35 34 35 kilometer like peak uh long run for the marathon uh how much of that would be at close to marathon pace and and what is close to marathon pace in in this context yeah normally we would sort of say the first um the, the first one or two kilometers would, would just be a warm-up so it would just be a essentially a jog or a little bit faster and then it would then it would up until about halfway into the run you'd be running at uh, about 80 to 85 percent of your goal marathon pace so to work that out if your goal marathon pace is four minutes per kilometer 
um, that's very roughly about four, uh, about four forty, I think, per, uh, approximately four thirty to four forty for the first half, and then you want to be getting down to ninety to ninety five percent of your goal marathon pace in the final, uh, progressively getting down to it in the final um, fifteen kilometers. So, you know, a, a little bit, uh, not, not quite the whole second half, but, but very close to it. So that would be more like four fifteen to four ten per kilometer. Yeah. Um, and we do, I think we mentioned in there anyway, but if, if we don't, I, I do prescribe it, it with, to the people that I individually coach that if you feel good and you feel able to handle it, try and actually run at your goal marathon pace for the last 5K. Yeah. Um, and I do that at my, in my own training um, if I can. Some runs I'm not able to. Um, so my, my goal, I, I'm trying to run a, uh, this year a, a, a sub-230 marathon. And, and so my goal pace is about 332, uh, I think, per kilometre. So some days I'm able to handle that in the last 5Ks and, and some days I, I, I just can't. Like I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do when I'm 5K to go, I'll do one or 2K there and then I'm, I'm really struggling. So I need to pull it back to 340 or 345. So, yeah, it just sort of depends on how you're feeling. But if you're able to, I, I do try and advise people to, to touch on that goal pace in the last few kilometers if possible. And uh, yeah. the thing that you mentioned there at the beginning as well with the uh, Kenya running experience that uh, that you have, can you talk about that as well? That, that's something that, that I've had actually on my bucket list for a long time. I would love to go out to Kenya and, and experience running yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, any, anyone can, can can go to Kenya, obviously, on their own. But I, I think the reason why we created a, a, a training camp slash tour, which is what the Kenya running experience is, is because a lot of people just didn't want to go on their own. Um, and they also didn't really know how to how to get there and how to where to stay and how to do it all because the internet doesn't have a lot of information although we have published an article about that for people that want to do it themselves but some people just don't really want to go there and 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 train on their own so so we put together i guess a, a camp or a, or a tour i guess i guess it's very similar to someone wanting to, to travel to to if you're in europe travel to the u.s but you haven't got anyone to go with and you want to join other people, you know, there's obviously tour groups. So we wanted to essentially um, like Kentucky tour or, or uh, Trafalgar or whatever. We wanted to essentially create the same idea, but it, as a Kenyan running experience. And as part of that, we also, uh, I, I've been very fortunate enough to have met quite a lot of um, very good Kenyan runners and even um, uh, European and American runners that are based in, and uh, sorry, and Australian and Kiwi runners that are based in Kenya. So uh, I'm able to ask them to come and sit with us at a, at a, at a cafe, for example, for an hour and have a, have a Q and a, um, so there, that's a big part of the Kenya running experience. We try and do at least, um, five of them per week, where we sit down with, for example, Sondre Moen, uh, and Julian Wonders joined us on the last one. Um, Brother Colm also did, David Radish's coach. So we had one to two hour Q&As with these really good athletes and the, and the people that came along absolutely loved that, not only just to meet them to, but to be able to pick their brain about what they, you know, how they live and what they do in training. Um, but but uh, being a coach myself, I also um, create obviously the, the training plan that week. So it's quite loosely structured so that people can choose to do their own sessions if they want to. But, you know, we do a tempo run together on, on, on Tuesday and then an interval session on Thursday and then a long run on the weekend. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're thinking about um, – coming uh, you know going to kenya and, and training and you feel like you're able to do it yourself I, I strongly recommend doing that and there's a great article on our website that can guide you and put you in the right direction as to where to stay and so on but if you if you like the idea of sort of joining in on some of the activities i just mentioned then you might want to put your name down on, a, on our website for, for the next one so, so the, the actual next one is closed now and it's starting in a couple of weeks i'm heading over to kenya at the end of this month um but we'll probably do another one uh, about mid next year so we've, we've only been doing one a year so far but it may it may it may increase it to a year. We'll see. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, and during that time, do you do you live in sort of like the the athletes are are doing in some sort of uh, like how how does that work? That's the only thing we, we yeah we we don't really we don't we we I guess we should but um yeah if if you want to live like a local there it's 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 tough um it, it's it really is I mean you know it's cold water out of a bucket for your shower and yeah <laughs> that's what yeah it, it really is like we stay at the high altitude training center which is which is um I guess it, it's by far the best the the, the highest quality hotel in in that area by far but it's probably the equivalent of about a three-star hotel in europe um uh, very good gym by the way very good gym track and pool the rooms are the they're okay they're about a three-star standard um but outside of that yeah you really are you, you won't you'll struggle to find a hot shower sort of thing um and uh you may sleep on a very uncomfortable bed um but inside the high altitude training center which is where we stay um it's it's fairly comfortable so yeah that's the issue i mean if, if you want to really live like a local you, you've got to be game like you've got, <laughs> you, you've got to be ready for 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 yeah, for an uncomfortable sleep and a, and a cold shower, and or, or maybe no shower, uh, and yeah, it's 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 rough how they do it. I mean, they've 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 grown up there and lived that way their whole life, so they don't really know any better. But um, you know, for us fortunate people, uh, you know, in Europe or Australia or the US that that have hot showers and uh, taps that run that have drinking water coming out of them, you know, it's it's a it's a big change to go and live like a local over there. So. No, to answer the question, we we stay at the High Altitude Training Center, which is which is a pretty good hotel. Yeah, um, yeah. To to wrap things up, uh, if you would recommend uh, your top three favorite articles on SweatElite.co yep. to a new reader, what would they be? Yep, good, good question. Um, I, I had to think hard about this one because th- there's a lot of articles that I really like to read. But I think one of my favorite ones that I've read a lot is um, it's called Elliot Kipchoge uh, uh, Outsiders. So it's basically an article written by my colleague Tate who who spent uh, a month with me training with Kipchoge. And it's, it's an article about the lifestyle of the people that train with Kipchoge that haven't quite made the elite level yet. So they don't actually have sponsors they don't have sponsors, they don't have any funding, but they turn up every day to train with Kipchoge's group anyway. Um, we spent quite a bit of tri- time with some of those guys that live on, you know, two or three dollars a day. They, they don't have, they, don't, they have very little. Um, they often have to do jobs like shine shoes during the day or, you know, f- or farming jobs or, or something just to, just to get by. But they're, they're just doing everything they can to get up to Kipchoge's level. The article is very well written just about their lifestyle and what it's like for them. Um, uh, one of the all-time, uh, by, by, by far, our article has had the most views. I think it's had almost 3 million views is Kipchoge's training log leading into Berlin Marathon. That's definitely one that people should check out just because it's just fascinating how much, how much quality, you know, how much, uh, how impressive his training is in general and just how much he's able to handle. Um, and I think another good one is uh, an article called Training for a Sub 205 Marathon. It's basically an article about Renato Canova's philosophy in, in detail. Um, so anyone that's not clear about um, Renato Canova's philosophy after what we've talked about over the last hour or so, because we sort of did, um, you know, bounce around from different ideas, it's all in detail in that article. Um, and the reason for the topic, uh, the the title of that article like that is that if you look at the sub 205 marathon results of all time, I think something like 90, some, 92% of them or something like that um, came from 
were either were, were either coached by or influenced in some way by Canova. So Canova has coached most of the sub two hundred five male marathon results. Um, so probably those three: Eli Kipchoge Outsiders, um, Eli Kipchoge's training log lead, leading into Berlin Marathon two thousand and seventeen, and training for a sub two hundred five marathon, which is basically Renato Canova's training philosophy in detail. Yeah, and we'll link to those in the in the show notes as well. And uh, f- finally, uh, to finish off the rapid fire questions, and I actually have a coaching call uh, with an athlete in three minutes, so we really need to make this rapid fire uh, easier yeah. game. And the first I'll one is very short. <laughs> yeah, the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to to running or endurance sports? Uh, Hal Higdon's uh, book called "Very Old, 1999." It was written called "Marathon: The Ultimate Training Guide." It's a very good book. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, two, I'll be very quick with them both. One is the 10 minute rule. So if you don't feel like do anything, do it just for 10 minutes and then your brain will trick you and, and then you'll realize you can just keep doing it for longer. Sometimes I don't feel like running, but I say go and run for 10 minutes and then I end up running for an hour. Um, <laughs> number two is putting goals in public. So if I want to achieve a goal, I state it publicly somewhere. That's definitely helped as well. I love both of those, but in particular, the 10-minute rule. Wow, that's, uh, that's super, uh, super uh, I guess, uh, sneaky, but, but great. It and, works uh, very well, especially with accounting. If you don't feel like doing any accounting, just do it for 10 minutes, then you'll end up just finishing it off. Oh, <laughs> I really needed that specifically. <laughs> and, uh, finally, who's somebody in uh, running or endurance sports that you look up to? Uh, it's very hard to go past uh, Elia Kipchoge just because of what he's doing for the sport. But I do want to say, because this is the triathlon podcast, that spending that um, about five months with Jan Frodeno living with him before he won the Olympics was very special. And I do really look up to him because I was able to sort of um, do a bit of running with him before he was just the, the superstar that he is. And I really look up to him as well. Yeah. Finally, uh, where can people find you on the internet and on social media? Uh, I'm not very exciting, but I guess the, uh, the, the brand, um, sweat elite is on Instagram, uh, and Facebook. So if you just search sweat elite in both of those two, we, we don't do anything on Twitter at the moment, but, um, sweat elite on Instagram, which is the handle at sweat elite. And then if you type sweat elite into Facebook, you'll find us there as well. We publish a lot of information for free on both of those, by the way, people that just are, are real, uh, I guess, nerds like me, uh, about running, um, you might want to look at the website and, and maybe subscribe if you're up to it. But if you just want to, you know, a little bit of information here and there the, the social media channels will, will give you that yeah i think the subscription is one dollar per week or something like that if i recall correctly so yeah it, uh, it's <laughs> it's it's well worth it it's a couple of cups yeah, of coffee it's, yeah that's right we'd have to say about that because yeah it, it is one us dollar a week it's built in three month increments um but it's you know if you really you know compare it to what that real cost is it's you know, cost of a of, of a lunch really um every three months um so if you want to learn you know a lot about running um i think it is worth the money and there's been uh, quite a few thousand people that have uh, that have thought that too so yeah i'm, I'm very uh very uh, fortunate to have been able to to create this and i'm very happy to hear that subscribers enjoy it yeah really but you better get to your question call <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll go go now uh thank you so much uh, matt it was a pleasure having you on and uh, keep up the great work with uh, sweat elite Thanks very much for having me. That was a really interesting talk, I think, about the training, the habits and the routines of the best runners in the world. And to me, the most important takeaway is that there are patterns, there are a lot of similarities, but there is not one single right answer. For example, 
these African runners, they run 100 kilometers uh, per week from their young teenage years. And that means that they can handle this massive training load that they are doing with both volume and intensity. And it seems that they do a lot more hard or moderately hard running than what we talked about, for example, in the interview with Steven Seiler on polarized training. And uh, they might not actually be, as we discussed, they are probably not following that model, which just goes to show that we should never approach training or coaching with a dogmatic view or a formulaic view of what is the right way, because it is individual. So if you, as a listener, are somebody who grew up in uh, these conditions that, uh, that Kenyan and Ethiopian runners did and from an early age have built up this massive base of running, then maybe you can handle this sort of training yourself. Or if you're a coach coaching this kind of runner, then the quote-unquote polarized, polarized training formula might not be the best thing to apply to your athlete. So avoid dogmatic views on training. Remember that it's all individual. And if you want to run a sub 205 marathon, then it seems that things like 30 to 40 kilometer tempo runs seem to be the name of the game. Not necessarily the case if you are trying to qualify for Boston or something like that. But I guess that the, the take home message here is that we can definitely learn a lot from the elites and uh, we can model some things, but we shouldn't uh, copy anything. Uh, so model, uh, but, uh, but don't, don't copy and consider your individual circumstances uh, the other really really important thing in my opinion was the mindset of these great running champions of not taking training too seriously and not getting hung up on the outcome of a session race day is where it matters and the training leading up to it is about going through a process and putting in the effort but no need to get hung up on the outcome of the individual workouts and finally the long-term approach these runners have very clear, clear-cut long-term goals, but also the long-term perspective of listening to your body, take an easy day or a day off if needed, if that means that you will be able to long-term uh, have a better training period, training build leading into a marathon, because you won't get injured or you won't get overtrained. Finally, make sure that you go and check out Sweat Elite on sweatelite.co. They have tons of great articles. They have a great newsletter. A lot of free content. I think you can access uh, a couple of articles per month for free. But in my opinion, it's well worth spending the very minimal amount of money of a subscription. Uh, if nothing else, to give back a bit for all the money, time and effort put in by Matt and the team in keeping the website going and producing really, really great quality content. For this episode, as usual, you can find the show notes and links to articles mentioned on thattriathlonshow.com. And in the next episode, I interview Melanie McQuaid, who is a Canadian elite triathlete and coach. She is a five-time world champion in Xterra and ITU cross triathlon events. And we will discuss training for off-road triathlon or Xterra triathlon and also racing in those event events, getting into things like gear and stuff. So, uh, so it will be very interesting for those athletes that are focusing on uh, this part of triathlon, which actually we haven't covered before on the podcast specifically. But I will make sure to ask, ask some general training questions as well. So even if Xterra doesn't interest you in the slightest, you will definitely get something from that interview anyway. If you enjoy the podcast and get a lot of value from it, please help me grow it by spreading the word, telling your friends, telling your training partners, your frenemies in triathlon racing or endurance racing in general about it. 
remember that it's not just for triathletes cyclists and runners and swimmers and other endurance athletes all benefit and uh, i see it time and time again in emails that i get that everybody from from rowers to cross-country skiers seem to be listening to particular episodes not necessarily about swimming technique or things like that but the general endurance things as we discussed with matt as well they do remain the same in in large part at, at least so don't think that this podcast is just for triathletes tell all your all your friends that are into endurance sports about it and i would really appreciate that big thanks to our sponsors roca that you can find on roca.com you can get 20 percent off your entire order with the promo code tts all caps and thank you to precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com get 20% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow20 or get your first box or tube for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.